you're speaking in the language that people understand, that stands out to a recruiter immediately. If you're recruiting for any type of position and somebody uses language that's in alignment with somebody that's familiar with that role, it does give an air of expertise and knowledge. This is Chan with The Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Good. How's it going, Max? Good. Thank you for taking the time to come on my podcast to discuss a couple of topics that I think would interest our listeners. The first is your recruiting background. The second is you went from New York to Colorado and there's the salary and transparency laws in Colorado. So I think that'd be very interesting to dive into. And then the third chapter, so to speak, of our discussion today is how you're able to pivot from like recruitment to customer success management, because that's one of the hot roles right now from what I've heard. And as we talked offline, it's also what you've heard as well in terms of popularity. So it's definitely something that I want to dive into and help people that are trying to transition to that role do it successfully. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background from like your education and then your first job or so? Yeah, absolutely. So a little background about me. I actually had a double major in college. I studied psychology, so I have a BA in psychology, and I also have a BA in philosophy, which a lot of people would ask, you know, what do you want to do, be a professional philosopher? And really what drew me to studying that was learning how to think and understand debate, argumentation, logic, rational thought. And I think that that is very transferable to any job and also works on your writing and communication skills. So I decided to study that in college. Post-college, well, I should back up for a second. I also played Division One college soccer. So I was a student athlete, which did take up a lot of my time during college. So I had a little bit less time for internships and things like that. So I'm kind of your classic story of somebody who was a four-year student athlete, got spit out of college, and didn't know what to do next. And I didn't really have a plan. So what I ended up doing was a really good friend of mine had studied business administration and marketing, and her job seemed really interesting to me. I asked her a little bit about what her day-to-day looked like, and she was working on Wall Street in New York City. I'm born and raised in New York. I'm from Long Island. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good. So I handed my resume over to her. She handed it in to her manager, and that is how I actually got my first interview and first job was through networking. And my first, actually, three jobs were through networking. And I did not apply directly to a job until the current job that I have now. Um, So there's a lot to be said for networking and really leaning into your business contacts and your friendships. But the reason that I decided to reach out to a friend, I'm sure you might be wondering, you know, why did you reach out to someone with a business administration background if you studied psychology? When I was graduating, I recognized that the salary potential that was available to me as somebody with a BA in psychology and a BA in philosophy was not at a livable wage that I needed to pay off my student loans and to live on my own. So I decided to go the business route and got really interested into entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship podcasts, books, LinkedIn, and just totally immersed myself in that world. 
it ended up that I had no idea about what it would be like to be a recruiter for HRIS, Human Resource Information Systems on Wall Street. And it was one of the best, most eye-opening experiences that I've ever had. The reason that I loved it so much and the thing that's really cool about recruiting as a career, I would say to pivot into anything else, is that you learn the ins and outs of everything that's required for that job, not only from a technical skill standpoint, a soft skill standpoint, but also in general, just what the culture looks like for that type of team. So that's just kind of a tidbit into how I went from a psychology major to a recruiter in New York City from college. Yeah. So what did you like about working in recruiting? Like what made you like passionate about that you did it for multiple years? Yeah. So the thing that I liked about recruiting is that it is extremely people-based. And that's the reason that I loved psychology and philosophy. I love understanding the mind. I love understanding interpersonal relationships, human interactions, human behavior. And recruiting is a sales job. The great and not great thing about recruiting is that your product is a person, so it can talk back to you and it can also say no. So it's not the same thing as selling a car. When you're selling a car, you have to you know, worry about you know, just the buyer and the car doesn't have any say in it. But when you're aligning somebody with a new organization, you have two people making decisions on both sides. So you're managing two different human-based processes and you're managing the candidate-client relationship. You're managing what does my client need out of this hire? And you're managing what does my candidate need in terms of their career growth and out of this position? And finding that match is kind of like a puzzle piece in Tetris, but from mindset standpoint. So finding that fit for somebody is really, really rewarding and exciting. I actually don't know the count, but I've placed hundreds of people in new jobs And it's not just the thank you notes that are rewarding. It's just the idea that somebody was able to walk away and say, wow, I didn't know it was possible to have, you know, the PTO that I wanted and the work environment or the hybrid flexibility or things that they thought weren't possible. Working on those negotiation skills, working on their resume, working with the candidate through the process and working on coaching the client on better hiring practices. So really working on both sides, it was very mentally stimulating for me. So this is a career podcast, right? You were a recruiter. So what are some common mistakes that you seen from like candidates applying for the positions you posted? Yeah, that's a great question. I could list off quite a few. One of them that I'll start off with is just always be ready for an opportunity to come your way. If you're doing a job search, that doesn't start and end with the time you spend on LinkedIn or Indeed.com. It's not for the 30 minutes or the one hour a day that you allocate to the job search. It's every conversation that you have at the supermarket or at the gas station or with a friend. Being presentable, being pleasant, and always bringing value to your relationships is how, for me personally, I mentioned earlier that I got these jobs through networking. My resume was my previous interactions with those people. So always being on, just always being on, being polite and friendly. And one of the big ones that ties into that is the way that you answer the phone and the voicemail that you have saved on your cell phone. I know that in the digital age, a lot of us are used to texting or sending you know, messages or emails, but having a simple professional voicemail, just stating your name when you'll get back to them, making sure that you're smiling while you're speaking, because it makes a really big difference. Professional voicemail, I would say, is a big thing. 
But also, I know that a lot of people do get telemarketing calls and spam calls or unexpected numbers. And there's been times that as a recruiter, I have called people directly about a position because I thought, wow, this is such a good candidate. I'm not even going to email them about it. I'm just going to pick up the phone and call them and set up the phone interview that way. And they were not great when I answered the phone. So I think knowing that if you're in a job search, that you're always being observed, you're always being evaluated. And that's not something that should make you nervous. It's an exciting thing. It means that your opportunity could be at any moment, that all the work that you put in is worthwhile. So when you're in the job search, always be ready, understand common etiquette, right? Yeah, just common business and phone etiquette, I would say. Just being polite and courteous to people. I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed as a recruiter, this is another common one that you'll hear, is if people go for an in-person interview, maybe you make it to the second or third or fourth round, depending on what type and size of organization it is, be polite to the receptionist, be polite at the front desk, be polite to the people you see in the hallway. If you're going to the bathroom, be polite in the bathroom. These could be potential future coworkers, and you don't know what somebody's role is in the decision-making process or who they are in the organization. Most of the time, if you're in an office building, people aren't wearing a name tag with their job title on it. You could very likely be interacting with an upper level executive and have no idea. So I think the mistake that I've seen sometimes is that people only focus on who the recruiter is and who the hiring manager is, and they don't give that level of energy, respect, or due diligence to everybody else. And quite honestly, that's not good practice to have at work either way. So just being kind and respectful to all people throughout the process, it is really important. People do talk about it with the recruiters. They'll say, hey, was that person in here for an interview? Yeah, they were really rude to me in the hallway. People talk about things like that in the office. Yeah, like a good example is like when you do these group interviews where the hiring manager brings a few teammates and then the Mm -hmm. candidate just focuses on the hiring manager and they completely ignores everybody else. That's also not good practice, right? And I'm assuming as from your experience as a recruiter, that has happened, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Panel interviews, they can be nerve wracking and difficult because first and foremost, you're trying to focus on whomever asked the question that you're currently trying to answer. But if you're able to shift your eye contact and bring in that inclusivity and bring people into the conversation, smiling is important for anybody that's ever been a dancer or a cheerleader or any type of stage performer. Smiling makes a really big difference because it just has a really good psychological effect on people. People will think that you're friendly. But during a panel interview, it is really important to try to not focus on just one person specifically, even if you do notice a power dynamic that, you know, there's a VP in the room and then and, you know, three team leads, everybody should be treated with equal respect down to the person who might be cleaning the office and emptying the waste paper baskets or refilling the paper in the copier. Everybody should be treated with respect. Nothing goes unnoticed during an interview. So if you've reviewed thousands of resumes, because you said you filled like hundreds of positions, right? So what are some common yep. resume mistakes that people have done that you've scratched their candidacy? Yeah, I would say when the information is not clearly communicated and when it's in a confusing format, I've seen a lot of really interesting resume formats. And I think keeping it as simple and minimalist as possible, having, you know, your name 
making sure to include your contact information because I've actually received resumes from really good candidates that I did not have a way to contact them because of the ATS or applicant tracking system I was using didn't ask them that question or it could have been optional and they didn't fill it out and it wasn't on their resume. So making sure your phone number, your email address, list two email addresses if possible, check your email address during a job search. I like when people link their LinkedIn profiles so I can check that out as well. But also just making sure that you can be clear and concise and specific. I've seen people overuse columns, like they'll have three or four different columns within their resume. I just like to read from top to bottom and, you know, just check out, you know, a nice little professional summary or a professional, you know, high level overview. One thing that I've done for people who have longer or executive careers when I have done career coaching is I've put key highlights and I'll limit that to three. I love seeing quantifiable metrics, especially if you have KPIs. If you have a key performance indicator in a position, put that on there. If you're in a sales position and I do not see any numbers associated with your job, it just doesn't make any sense. It's what were you doing during that job? Like, it's nice to know what your accomplishments are. And the more quantifiable and specific you can be and the more measurable you can be, the better, because it gives people an idea of, okay, over a three month period, I was able to accomplish X, Y, and Z, not just answered the phone politely day to day. And then I can see that you worked there for two to three years. That's very vague. And it doesn't really give me that much insight. It's generic and doesn't stand out. So standing out by being very specific, saying, you know, organized and led a key project with XYZ stakeholders, you know, negotiated, blah, blah, blah. So being very action oriented and quantifiable always stands out to me in a resume. The other question, there's a huge debate. Are you pro cover letter or not? Like, do you read them or do you not? Do you think it's necessary? <laughs> so that's a really good question. So <laughs> I've seen this mistake actually happen with the cover letter. I'm recruiting for a role right now. And I can tell you, I've received five cover letters that were written to a different company. So that was great that they put a cover letter in there, but it was not addressed to me and it wasn't the right company. And it was not talking about the position I was recruiting for. So if you are going to do a cover letter, if you're going to do something that could be considered optional, I think it's important to make sure that you nail it and make it specific and see if there's information. LinkedIn is such a great resource because if your hiring manager or people at that organization are posting information, if their company page is active, you can pull out specific things and say, hey, I noticed that you have this initiative going on for this quarter. I was really interested in it. This is how I can drive and bring some value to it. Would love the opportunity to speak further. If you can put some sort of hook in a cover letter, that's awesome. If you have something that's very copy and paste, generic, doesn't stand out, not really worthwhile, just kind of extra space and could kind of dissuade a recruiter or hiring manager. Do I read them 100% of the time? Honest answer, no. I don't always have time to read the cover letter. So that's why the resume is so important because that's really your time to shine and get your foot in the door for the interview. But if you can write a good cover letter, go for it. So it's one of those things like when the cover letter is optional, should the candidate write one or should they not write one? Like that's the big debate, right? Like yeah, it's going to hurt your candidacy yeah. if you don't write one is what I'm trying to ask. I would say that from all of the people I know, because not only have I hired or placed a lot of candidates in positions from recruiting agencies, and I've also done internal recruiting. So I've done both sides. 
everybody has individual preferences. And unfortunately, there are laws and different hiring practices that are put in place to prevent cognitive biases, but human beings do possess them and have them. And there are some unwritten rules that certain hiring managers and recruiters have that, you know, if somebody does X, Y, and Z, I automatically reject them. And sometimes that's hard to know. But the real question that I ask myself is, do you want to work for that organization? Do you want to work for an organization where it's unclear what the rules are to proceed forward? Or, you know, do you want to work for an organization where somebody appreciates that you put a little bit of extra effort in to get their attention because you cared enough and wanted the role enough? So I think it's a perception thing. For me, I look at it and I say, oh, wow, that's great. They kind of want the extra mile. Depending on the applicant tracking system, this kind of ties into cover letters. Applicant tracking systems, some of them are disasters and can be a mess. And I know for job seekers, you don't have time to, you know, fill out nine different sections on an applicant tracking system and copy and paste your resume into all these different sections and put all that information down. I can say a lot of those processes can be clunky. And for me, that's when I personally bypass them and go directly to people on LinkedIn and find, you know, three to five people to start off with within the company and reach out about the role, but with a specific ask. So yeah, the cover letter thing can help, but even taking the concept of the cover letter of just a quick one to two sales hook or elevator pitch of why should I interview you? Like, why should I take time out of my day when I have 50 projects going on to speak to you on the phone? And how are you going to help make my job easier? If you can say that in a cover letter or in an elevator pitch, then do it. But if you don't feel super confident, I would exclude it if it was optional. To answer your question, I really think it's a personal opinion. I haven't seen anything in the industry that says like, yes, 100% do it or no, don't do it at all. I've heard so many different opinions on it. Unfortunately, it's such a gray area for all of us. <laughs> it's one of things that if you really want the job, write a cover letter. If you don't care one way or another, then don't waste your time with one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you are a hiring manager now at your current companies, but we're going to get into that in a second. What was the mindset shift or the responsibility shift between you being a recruiter and placing people compared to being a hiring manager where you are right now? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I can tell you that this is probably where I see kind of the two sides or three sides collide, right? Because I have a lot of connections and contacts who are agency recruiters who do 360 degree full cycle recruiting, like they run their desks. So they do business development and bring in their own clients. And then they also source their own candidates, place them in positions. I know people who are sourcers, and I know people who just do like account management on the recruitment side and place candidates at the sourcers. So I've known people in all different types of roles on that side. I know a lot of candidates and job seekers, and then I know hiring managers. And I can say the difficulty in being a hiring manager is that your full-time job is not dedicated to finding a candidate and recruiting is definitely a full-time job. And that is why agencies exist. That is why they get hired because I could spend eight hours a day sourcing to find the right talent or even being on the phone doing the initial phone screen, let alone the first, second, third and fourth round interview, and then the decision making process, then the salary negotiation, and then the 30, 60 day, 90 day onboarding cycle. The entire thing is why HR and recruiting departments exist. So for someone like myself, I'm at an early stage company. We do not have a dedicated internal recruiter who can just pass me, you know, here's the top five shortlisted candidates that I saw this week. 
I have to do that on top of my day-to-day responsibilities. So I can tell you that's where people talk about kind of the resume black hole and that hiring managers don't care about you and they're rude and they don't care that you don't have a job. It's not that people don't care. I really honestly don't believe that. I think it's a time and a priority decision. You know, if you're in business and you have a client that needs something who's paying money, that takes priority sometimes over getting on Indeed and screening 200 resumes for the next hour. So I think it's not a time management problem, but there's not enough time in the day problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, again, there's only so many hours in the day, right? And you make a good point in terms of when you're hiring for a candidate. Yes, you need someone on the team, but it's not your main priority because you still have to do other stuff that's part of your job, right? Hiring just a small aspect. So candidates get offended if you like ghost them, but you have a lot of other stuff on your plate on top of the hiring that you're trying to do, right? Yes, I do want to address the ghosting thing, though, because what I've seen, and I think it's really interesting, the perspective I have is from both sides, because really early on, I started as just a recruiter. So I thought, from my perspective, I was like, wow, it's really rude that, I mean, these hiring managers are saying that they need someone to fill this role. But then every time I shortlist and send them all these candidates, they're never setting up the interviews, or they're not responding to the interview requests, or they're missing phone screens, or something came up. And I didn't quite understand why that was happening. And I thought that it was just a general disregard for the position. But when I realized that it is quite difficult, actually, depending on the industry you're in and actually what you have going on internally at the organization to balance those priorities, I had a little bit more compassion for the hiring manager side. The other thing, too, with the ghosting, I think now that we're in the age where it is very easy to set up email automations, I have personally been working on just providing more transparency and visibility into the hiring process, where I'm setting up automated emails to let people know, you know, this is what's going on in the process. This is where you're at. So I think as the digital age creates more solutions that hiring managers can use and recruiters can use, there's less of an excuse for ghosting. But I can say when it was a manual process, when I first started recruiting, it was like, 2015, 2016. So, I mean, I was manually inputting a lot of information into applicant tracking systems. So, I mean, now information, you can pull it directly from different profiles and it's become a lot easier. So I think as we see the technology increase, the ghosting hopefully decreases because I really don't believe in that practice, especially if you have had a conversation with that person. I think it's a professional no-no. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Because you have the value between the recruiters or hiring managers ghosting, and then you have candidates who get these jobs and then they ghost the job, right? Or they ghost the interview, right? So I think like just trying to be more united would help everybody be more compassionate in the job search process. Yeah, I think everyone from all sides, like it would be useful to have a little grace to think that somebody might not be doing something to you personally. And at the same time, you have to think, How many hundreds of other candidates are they trying to manage that same level of communication with? Or it depends on the size of the organization. Sometimes it's less. It could be like eight to 10 people and it's a smaller and more manageable chunk. But, you know, if you're at a medium to large size company, hundreds of thousands of resumes coming in. So managing those processes are different. So it does depend on the size and scope of organization. It depends on whether do they have an internal dedicated recruitment team? Do they have HR splitting HR and payroll and benefit processes with recruiting. There's a lot of different setups that companies have that can impact the way that recruiting is approached. But if you're a full-time recruiter, no excuse for ghosting. That's a, I will stand on that rock. 
<laughs> good for you. Good for you. Appreciate that. So what made you decide to go from New York to Colorado? Like, What made you want to make that move? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, like I mentioned, I worked on Wall Street just right next to the stock exchange. So I was in the financial district, lower Manhattan, you know, from Long Island. So I'm kind of a coastal person. And I really enjoyed working in the city. I worked up on Fifth Avenue for a while, kind of by Times Square. And I got a good taste of different parts of the city. And I really enjoyed it. For anybody listening, New York has an extremely fast paced lifestyle. And I am a very competitive and driven person. But I got very burnt out. And I know that topic is I think come up for different members of your podcasts before, but I got extremely burned out where my work-life balance was not what it needed to be. So a very good friend of mine actually went to West Point. She was stationed in Colorado and she said, it is beautiful out here. And there is actually a pretty budding startup scene in Denver and there's good opportunities. You know, you might want to consider it. Uh, I moved out to Colorado and I've loved it. The balance between the city life, the different businesses that are available out here, Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, there's a bunch of different areas that there's, you know, businesses that you can work with. And then the beauty of the mountains, it just works for me right now. So it was a quality of life decision. And it also at the same time, by reducing that level of burnout, made me entirely more capable at my career and to be more present in my job, to think more clearly, to be more just on and sharp. I've been able to be more sharp than I was when I was, you know, squishing myself into the subway on the sixth train, heading downtown and really stressed out all the time. And, you know, of course, stress is a part of life and we all have to manage it from a workplace perspective. But yeah, it was a quality of life decision. But it has allowed me to focus on other business skills that I could not have personally honed if I had stayed in New York at that time. So you had a friend who lived in the Colorado area and she brought you on. So it was like a referral for the job? Is that? Uh, no, she went to West Point, the military academy. So it's the United States military academy. So she was in the army. She was an officer at the time. And she has been my best friend since high school. And she just recommended it. And I think for me, it was a really great decision because I had so many different, you know, books and podcasts and things that I was interested in that this kind of living in a slower paced region of the country, I would compare it to be a bit more slower paced here than in New York or New York City, at least has allowed me to go from survival mode to thriving. And I think just thinking about environment does not start and stop with just your office itself. I mean, there was commute. My commute is so much nicer when I am hybrid. So if I do need to go into the office, it's extremely easy. It's much less crowded. It's just a better fit city-wise for me. Okay, so your friend recommended you to come to Colorado, but you still had to find a job on your own, right? Is that? Yep, yeah, okay, I actually... There, okay, that makes sense now. Yep, 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 yep. So I still found the job on my own. So actually, that was the first job that I used LinkedIn for finding the job because I did not know anybody in Colorado besides her and she was in the military. And that was how I began working with military veterans and military spouses and active duty service members who are transitioning to civilian life as a career coach. And I used my recruiting skills, brought it to career coach land at a nonprofit and loved both so much. And that's how I kind of ended up there. Is it hard to apply out of state? Because you're in New York at the time, right? Is it hard to move states? Like if you had your resume saying that you're from New York, would someone in Colorado say that like, she's too far or like there's a lot of complications to 
like move from New York to Colorado. So how did you mitigate that? Yeah, big trick. I don't know if this is legal or not, but I actually put that I was located in Colorado. So I think some of the resumes I sent out might have said that I was located in New York, but willing to relocate. And some of them might have said that I was in Colorado. I can't quite remember, but I, I did look into, you know, how to, because I know a lot of recruiters and hiring managers, if they see someone out of state, they reject them immediately without even giving them the opportunity to say like, Hey, my brother-in-law lives there and I was moving there anyway. You know, sometimes you don't have the opportunity to explain the situation. So I think it's important for people to, at least if you are switching states or cities or it's over 60 miles, or it looks like a large commute where someone might kind of go, eh, they're a bit far. I don't know if they're going to be, you know, consistently on time or consistently available or make excuses. I would put like, you know, planning to relocate or in the process of relocating or something in parentheses that indicates that you will be in that area and able to attend to your duties. Great. And did you get a lot of response when you were starting to apply in Colorado? I did actually. I did, especially because I decided to focus on kind of the career coaching space, because I think the other thing too, is not only did I get burnt out from being in New York City, I got burnt out from being a recruiter. Because like you had mentioned earlier with managing client side and the candidate side, because I was an agency recruiter, I was speaking to so many people per day. I was like, what if I just narrowed it down a bit? And I just focused on the candidate side. And I helped them to find meaningful employment. And their mission, Hire Heroes USA, really stuck out to me. I learned so much from them. The service is free to all anybody that's affiliated with the military. They have a great website. They have a great LinkedIn program. Very easy to sign up. You get an assigned transition specialist and they will help you out. It's a really, really cool company. In terms of moving to Colorado, I do know that in Colorado, it's the first state, right, that initiated the salary transparency where every job that gets posted online, they have to provide a salary range. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. That's correct. So what was your experience like to see like all the salary from all the jobs when you're trying to apply to Colorado uh, compared to like New York where it's always hidden, right? Most of them are hidden. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. I didn't have to go to like Glassdoor and all those different like LinkedIn salary insight type websites. So I still did for a couple anyway, just out of habit, but it is a bit more interesting to see it posted directly with the job. It gave me a better idea of what the kind of going market rate was for each type of position. So uh, it was useful and informative. So are the ranges like really wide just to like appease the government or were they actually reasonable? Like, is it not like 50K to 150? I mean, like if that's a range. Like, that's oh, OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought they were pretty reasonable, but I saw some as big as, you know, 20 to 25K ranges, which, you know, it depends you know, kind of where you fall in terms of, you know, being entry level, associate level, kind of senior level for that role. But I did see some fairly large ranges. So when you got your first job in Colorado, working for the military as a transition specialist, helping military members go from military to corporate, when you were going through that interview process, did the recruiter talk about salary at all? Because it's already listed on their job ad, right? Oh, good question. And just to clarify, I didn't work for the military. I worked for a military nonprofit. So it was a nonprofit that serviced military members. But at the time, the transparency law had just came into effect. But I actually applied for and accepted that job in January of 2019. And I think that the law became effective 
somewhere around that time. So I actually don't remember that really being a major part of the process for that job. For the job that I have now, I did recognize that it was posted on all of the job advertisements. And since I had been out of recruiting for a while, I didn't realize they had passed the law. I started to see people posting about it a lot on LinkedIn and and realized there was some buzz and conversation around that. But since I was already employed, I wasn't investigating it too much at the time. Okay, so the salary transparency law in Colorado didn't really play a big part in your first job in Colorado and the one you're doing right now, right? Not really. I was focused on a lot of other factors that were more important to me at the time than I'm sure, you know, as a career coach, salary isn't the only factor that you negotiate on. There's a lot of other factors that come into the decision making process when you're deciding, you know, what job, what company, what position is the best fit for you. So salary actually wasn't a main decision making point for me, but it was nice to see them listed to give me some indication of where I should be negotiating. But yeah, it wasn't the biggest component. For me. Okay. So did you end up negotiating your salary at all for your current company or you? Or yes, you just I do. You did. Okay. For every job that I go into, I have an idea of what my numbers are and what counters I'm going to have and different various things like that. I'm sure you coach your clients on this, but I'm prepared for that conversation to take a lot of different directions. It just ended up being an easy <laughs> negotiation. So it was lucky we didn't have to go too in depth on it. So since the salary was listed, it made it easier to negotiate, right? Yeah, it made it easier to just understand where they were at budget-wise and understand, you know, because it's difficult if you're not sure if something is a $50,000 a year job or a $150,000 a year job. It's really hard to understand, you know, based on responsibilities, even if a company does have a glass door profile, I'm sure a lot of people have come across this. If it's a smaller company or there's not that many reviews, there's not a ton of data and it's not always super reliable. So yes, if you have a very large company like an Amazon or a Microsoft or something like that, you can relatively go by the different salaries are very specific to like very specific job titles at those companies. They do have pretty fairly accurate salary data. But for medium to small companies, it can be hard to kind of judge, you know, what should I be asking for? And am I going to lowball myself or price myself out of the position? Okay, that makes sense. So let's move on to the last chapter. Well, your current journey right now in your career, which is customer success management. What made you decide to go from recruiting to a customer success role? I had a client service manager position. I worked for a home health care company. So it was a bit different than a direct client facing position. It was more akin and similar to kind of like a social worker case management type position. But it did introduce me to the world of just being in a kind of client facing position without direct sales KPIs or direct phone screen interview, hiring, offering, onboarding type KPIs. So that position was really attractive to me. And I realized I liked client service management. And I did a little research and I found that in SaaS, in the software as a service world, that there was this kind of new customer success type field that was blossoming. And it seemed like there was a lot of great opportunities. I found a lot of thought leaders that I enjoyed following on LinkedIn. I started reading up about it. 
There is actually someone named Dan Martell that I started following on YouTube. He has some great videos about just getting into SaaS in general and scaling a business from that perspective. And he talked a lot about good customer success or CSM tips. So after I had learned about it, I thought, you know what, this is the perfect role for me. This takes all of the attributes of everything that I've enjoyed doing task-wise on a day-to-day basis. It involved project management, account management, being proactive, relationship-based, rapport building. There's so many aspects to it that I enjoy that it kind of took everything from previous positions and rolled it up into one. So I kind of decided to venture off into that space. All right. So in terms of the recruiting aspect, were you looking for a change at that point or did something like made you say, okay, maybe it's time to look elsewhere for another type of position that I'd be interested in? Yeah, for me personally, I think that recruiting and talent acquisition is definitely an awesome career path. For me, I just didn't see myself as it being my you know lifelong career path and goal. I wanted to add a more robust kind of quality of daily activities. So customer onboarding and software project implementations and project management for software implementations is something that I learned about when I was recruiting for HRIS professionals. So I essentially recruited people who implemented Workday. And when I started working with people who were implementing Workday and I worked with those consultants, I realized that project management for software implementations was a really, really cool job opportunity. And I enjoyed hearing about the different milestones of the project and the way that they would manage it. And I got interested in getting my PMP and there's a Google certification for project management. So I started to dive a lot into the world of project management and customer onboarding and just kind of leading into those type of tracking activities. So in the world of recruiting, there was a lot of one-to-one conversations with candidates and clients, maybe the primary relationship manager at the client or direct point of contact or POC. Within the CSM position, I'm able to engage with various levels of the organization, but usually in larger meetings or training sessions, super user training sessions, things like that. So I just get to interact with more people than I typically would. So how are you able to like apply to this role? Because one of the things a lot of professionals struggle with is to pivot roles because they've, they don't have that experience. So how were you able to pivot successfully? That's a good question. I think there's a couple ways I could answer it. I would say one of them is just confidence. I just had confidence in my ability to perform the job duties and tasks associated with the job. After I kind of immersed myself in it and learned a lot about customer success, I thought I would be really well suited for something like this and, you know, found case by case specific examples of you know, previous things I've done in other positions that were transferable. So when it came to public speaking, there was a time that I gave a big presentation for Hire Heroes about applicant tracking systems to a very large number, like 60 to 80 people in the organization. And I just found relevant experience and tied it to the job description and focused on how I could bring value. And when I was asked about different technical aspects of the job or programs that I hadn't previously worked with. I was just honest and said, I've not worked with that before, but confident in my ability to learn how to do so. And didn't hurt that I offered to buy some coffee and stuff like that along the way, but just a willingness to learn and a willingness to improve. I'm really big on continual learning and continual improvement and growth and talking a lot about how I 
approach professional development, how I had approached it in previous positions, I tied that to how it would help me to grow and evolve in this current position. So I did not come to the table with 100% of the skill sets, nor do I think anybody should, because that would be a lateral move. So I think that with the pivot, I just broke down the job description piece by piece and focused on things I had done that were relatable to that. And then I just went for it, kind of like Nike. I just did it. So when it comes to the online application for this role, before you didn't have the customer success management title. So did you tell your resume on customer success management responsibilities just to close the gap? Or how did you do it? A bit, but because I was a client service manager, it was a really similar type position in terms of some of the duties that I was doing. Very different in a lot of ways. Obviously, I was working in home care, and this is an early stage software company. So I hadn't worked in tech. But I think that the big thing I hung my hat on was that I recruited for tech and for software implementation specifically. So I focused on kind of the functional experience that I had in terms of speaking with people who were on those projects. So I focused on the strengths, didn't leave out the weaknesses. There's a couple of programs that were listed on the job description that I had never used before. But like any new job, you know, there is a kind of a ramp up period and a learning curve. So they asked me, you know, how do you plan on learning how to do this? And I said, well, you know, there's always YouTube and LinkedIn learning and buying you all a coffee if I have some questions, but there's a lot of free information and resources on the internet on how to learn different programs. So that's kind of my plan. And, you know, just being honest about it, because for them, if they needed somebody to hit the ground running who knew every single one of those programs, then they would have passed over me. But there was other attributes that mattered more, apparently, since I'm here. And so, again, it's, I guess, don't be afraid to speak your truth. If it's not the right fit on either side, then it's not the right fit. And I don't think that any job rejection should be taken as a personal failure or mean that you're not going to get a job with that title or in your industry of choice. I think sometimes it's just about continuing to look for, you know, the right environment and the right job. So just keep going and just have a positive attitude. I know it's easier said than done, but just to kind of take it with a grain of salt, take the feedback, ask for the feedback and just keep moving forward. In terms of you starting this role as a customer success manager, what was the learning curve like the first 30, 90 days? Like how did you go from a recruiter mindset to a customer success management mindset. So what were some of the things that you had to learn fairly quickly in that role? Yeah. So once things started to become pretty serious, where I was two to three interviews deep within the interview process for a couple of different customer success manager roles, I dove really, really deep into LinkedIn learning. I dove really deep into YouTube, anything I could find on the internet, any podcasts on Spotify that I could find any information that I could find about customer success, also different people's LinkedIn posts. I would filter, you know, different customer success type keywords, find posts, and then follow the pages of people who were uh, thought leaders or higher up in customer success, found different customer success softwares that followed their posts and pages. So I basically kind of reverse engineered the process of what is customer success and found out every single buzzword and thing I needed to know about it, created my own kind of library and dictionary to refer back to about, you know, what's churn and obviously knew what upselling and other simple things were. But there's some kind of little niche things that I learned about along the way. But I just did my best to learn everything that I could. And that was how I navigated the pivot was if, 
you're speaking in the language that people understand, that stands out to a recruiter immediately. You know, if you're recruiting for any type of position and somebody uses language that's in alignment with somebody that's familiar with that role, it does give an air of expertise and knowledge that is attractive to the recruiter. So hopefully that answers at least your question partially. So in a way, like going above beyond and doing self-learning can really be the equalizer to get experience in the role that you're trying to pivot to, right? 1000%, 1000%, because for me, you know, books and obviously, you know, the internet is the easiest because, you know, usually we have a smartphone or a laptop or a tablet connected with us, but, you know, typing in customer success and then paying attention to, is there a common theme of problems or things that people are talking about within customer success? What are the playbooks and things that they're building and using to solve those problems? And if you can understand it from an industry perspective before you're even within a company with their specific problems, you're already 10 steps ahead because you kind of have a bit of a framework to say, okay, so this is the framework for a CSM in general. Now let's focus on the specifics of what I'm solving at this specific organization. So you can bring a little bit more to the table than just showing up on day one, you know, saying, all right, what do I do? Which is not the best strategy. You should kind of show up with, at least in my opinion, some ideas straight off the bat about pain points that the company has and some ideas on how to solve them. What's one of the biggest challenges as a customer success manager that someone would want, so someone should be aware of if they're trying to move into this role? Biggest challenges. Well, I think the biggest challenge would be defining exactly what is required of the customer success manager, because right now it can be a catch-all term at certain organizations. So are you focused more on account management and upselling and like long-lasting relationships? Are you involved in the sales demos? Are you involved in only post-sales support? Are you involved in the onboarding and implementation process? process? Are you a project manager? Are you handling support tickets? Are you doing any service activities? So depending on the company's size, you could be wearing a variety of hats. So I think it's important to determine within customer success, what would I like to do specifically? And what size is the organization? And what type of tasks would I do on a day-to-day basis? Just like any other job, you know, what does my day-to-day look like? What am I responsible for directly? Because since it is newer, it can, again, be used as a bit of a catch-all term, and it could mean slightly different things at different organizations. So speaking of day-to-day, why don't you walk us through like your average day-to-day as a customer success manager? Yeah. So major things that I do is I have ongoing implementation projects that I'm the primary project manager for. So constantly using different project management tools and tracking tools to track milestones, communicating actively with people, different stakeholders in the project. So other project managers, for me, our software, Sospis is an EHS software. So we work in environmental health and safety. So it's a safety management and reporting tool. Essentially, I'll work with safety directors and different people at the head of those EHS departments. And, you know, we'll talk about where we are in the project. I will manage just incoming, you know, requests from other customers. So there is a degree of customer support right now within my customer success position, but we're actively in the process of hiring a customer support manager. So we are hiring for a customer support manager so that we can separate, like I mentioned, those activities and delineate out success from support because they are two different functions. Great. What's some advice that you provide for people listening that are looking to get into 
customer success management? Is it more of like a tech related role? Because I don't really see a lot of customer success managers outside of tech, but maybe you're able to shed more light on that than I would be able to. Yeah, to my knowledge, customer success started in the software as a service SaaS industry. When software became a subscription style kind of billing situation, you know, if somebody signs up for a one-year subscription and it's a cloud-based, I think it originated from cloud-based softwares. It's much easier than if you were implementing an entire ERP or some other type of major project in the past. Now that everything is cloud-based or this software specifically is cloud-based and it's subscription-based, it's easier to lose an account at the end of a subscription because it's the same thing as if you purchase something on your iPhone from the app store and you click on subscribe and that's about it. And it just lives in the cloud. So the decision-making became a lot easier for buyers to switch softwares if they were unhappy. So the idea of customer success is to be proactive rather than reactive. So the idea was to separate the support functions and the service functions would respond to incoming tickets. So there's already been a problem. There's already an error message or there's already somebody who forgot their password or can't log in or they don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. So that's where people go to knowledge bases or help pages for support articles and also submit service tickets or they chat with a live agent. So the idea with subscription style is to kind of take account management and instead of focusing on upselling alone and just adding modules or adding you know different features to the account to really just focus on the relationship based aspect of working with that company and again just being proactive rather than reactive is kind of the main idea of success versus support at least in my understanding of it i think there was another aspect to your question as well Oh, yeah. The other aspect of the question was, you explained how the customer success management role came about, but what's your advice for people that want to pivot into this role from another role that they currently have? Oh, yep. So advice for pivoting. For me, I just find that if I've set my mind on something and I do my research and I feel confident in it, I don't see a reason to hold myself back. I guess I'll kind of flip it on its head because I think I'm like the unusual exception to the rule job seeker where I don't typically get as nervous in interviews. And usually it's a very nerve wracking thing. But I think because I was a recruiter and I've conducted so many interviews, I'm so familiar with the format that I don't get as nervous and I don't get as much anxiety, I think, as you know maybe the average person. And I know that there's a lot of thoughts and things that go through people's heads. Obviously, first and foremost is we all need money to survive and we all need a job to pay our bills. But other than that, I think there's a lot of things that come into the question. Am I good enough? You know, Can I do this? Like, Will they like me? And that kind of constant stream and loop of thoughts. I think just slowing that down and being in the present moment and saying, if I have made it to this stage, if they liked my resume enough to talk to me, then I am qualified enough to be here. And I think doing affirmations to remind yourself that you are good enough for this position and you will succeed, if not now, in the future. And not to use an older quote, but I mean, Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Pretty sure there's a Michael Jordan quote about like failing more times than he succeeded. But people only pay attention to the wins. They don't look at you know, all the interviews that you flopped on before you got the job that you have. That's why I really like that idea of keep going because a career pivot can be scary if you don't know what to expect. And, you know, you might meet some maybe unkind recruiters and hiring managers who say, you know, you're not qualified for this role. And 
And that's okay. But you'll meet some people who do see the value that you bring. And if you focus on the value that you bring to a company and to an organization and to the problems that they're trying to solve, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about making a business case. If you focus on the facts and you focus on those attributes, the hard, tangible facts, I think at the end of the day, you'll be fine. And just smile and keep going because eventually you'll land that dream job. I think we see it all the time on LinkedIn when somebody's like, I've been looking for like eight months and I finally got that role. And my hope is for everyone out there for it to not take eight months, but sometimes, you know, great things take time. And I think just to have a positive attitude and you'll get there is my best advice. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to you see all these happy to announce posts on LinkedIn, but there's probably a lot of failure that went behind that post before they were able to make that post happen, right? Yeah. And the other point that I'll put to that, the minds, I think mindset's really important because you carry that from interview to interview. And, and that's the other thing. I posted this on LinkedIn like a couple of months or maybe a year or so ago. Like as a recruiter, sometimes it's easier for me to pick up the phone if I see a good candidate. And if I call them and they have terrible phone etiquette or they're rude or not nice or unkind, like that person in their element, that's person on their day to day. That's not somebody that you're probably going to want to bring on board onto your team because that's usually the same person that says they operate well under stress on their resume. So really making your actions align with your words is important. So I think when I mentioned earlier that you should always kind of be on and you're always being evaluated is important. But the mindset thing as well, if you've just gone through three really tough interviews and you felt like you didn't do well and you feel like you're kind of like negative and you're not like really in a great headspace and you have another one coming up, it could be best for you to reschedule because you really want to go into it with a clear head and your energy matters. And it's not just as simple as smiling. It's body language. It's tone of voice. It's everything because people remember how you make them feel more than what you said. And that is a proven fact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They always say when it comes to answers to their interview questions, most of it is body language and a little bit is actually the words that come out of your mouth. So you have to take that into account for sure. And in terms of rescheduling, I personally would try not to reschedule with a recruiter because from my experience, usually if you try to reschedule, it doesn't really happen. But like, what's your thoughts on that? Like, have you had people call you to reschedule and like things you were able to reschedule or other things happen? You just went to other candidates at that point. That's a good question. Two points to that. It kind of depends on what stage of the interview process you're at and where you are. But what I'm saying is if like some sort of catastrophic event happens five minutes before your interview, probably a good idea to reschedule. Like if you've just gotten into a car accident or I don't know, if something like really is about to throw you off, it's probably better not to go on to an interview because going back to what you kind of mentioned about the body language thing, I know sometimes people get really deep into rabbit holes about this. It's not just about, you know, striking a power pose. And that means people are going to think that you're confident and powerful and they'll like you more and they'll interview you. I think the big question at everyone's mind at the end of the day is, you know, do I want to spend 40 to 80 hours a week working with this person? That's the big question during an interview is, you know, you're spending such a significant amount of time with your coworkers and colleagues for depending on if, you know, if it's a full-time or part-time job or what the requirements are. But, you know, is this somebody I can see myself collaborating with, working with, sharing ideas with, 
Or is this somebody who's going to shut down or get angry or be abrasive or not nice or unkind? I think the people skills and the soft skills sometimes get overlooked. So yeah, I will admit I am not the Photoshop expert of the world, but I am somewhat pleasant to work with. So I would say that those are some of the things that can help you out is where you lack in technical skills, those can be taught, but just being a nice person, I mean, to some degree it can be taught, but being a nice person is something that people really do look for, just being pleasant. Yeah, like in my opinion, when it comes to like interviewing, yes, they want to know if you're qualified, but they also want to know if they can get along with you for 40, 80 hours a week, as you said, right? Because if you're qualified, but you're snobby or you have that aura that is jives people the wrong way, they're not going to hire you even if you are the most qualified for the position, right? Yeah, yeah. And then in terms of like qualified, and I'm not going by legal definitions, I think that for most of most of the situations I've been in where I've observed hiring managers behavior, they've always picked the candidate that is going to be coachable, open to feedback, but also somebody who's willing to bring ideas to the table. So it's a balance. It's not that they're just looking for someone to kind of like take orders and just listen to what they say. They want somebody who's going to be a contributor actively and problem solve and not be afraid to speak their minds. I'll just say one example specifically. I had been conducting an interview once upon a time a while ago. And I just asked somebody, you know, if you'd noticed that something was being done the wrong way or inefficiently, you know, what would you do? And they said, well, I wouldn't want to step on anyone's toes. And, you know, I really wouldn't want to cause waves. And, you know, that right there is a big red flag because, you know, if there's an inefficiency in a process, it's not about hurting anyone's feelings. It's just about fixing it together as a team. And it's all about communication skills. So I think, yeah, one of the big problems for job seekers is that if you go on all these different websites, you know, Job Hero and different things that have bullet points or buzzwords that you should include on a resume, I think really taking to heart, like, what does communication skills actually mean? Like, are you comprehending what somebody's telling you? And are you able to simplify a complex terminology and to deliver that information in a way that somebody's going to understand? So I think breaking down a lot of common words that you see on interviews and really understanding like what does it mean to possess that skill and a great way to do that now is that LinkedIn has skills tests and so does Indeed or aptitude tests I believe I don't know what they're called exactly but there's different exams that you can take to see if you're qualified and I think most of them could be tech related to like are you good with Excel and stuff like that but I think embodying being a people person is important because Inevitably, no matter what organization you're at, no matter what level job you have, whether you're an individual contributor or a C-suite executive, you are going to come into a stressful situation and you want to know, is the person next to me going to make this situation better or worse? And that's a good question to ask yourself. And if you ask, what energy am I projecting? Am I somebody that's going to help or hurt the situation? That's a really good way to understand body language and energy and mindsets for an interview. For sure. I appreciate the advice on that in terms of like how to interview when it's not just about the words, it's about like how you make people feel in the room, right? Yeah, for sure. Because it's, you know, again, I mentioned it a while ago when you walk in and you talk to maybe someone at the front desk and they direct you to where, you know, what department you need to go to or they bring you to the interview room you know, everything along the way is business and life is about working and getting along with people. So if you're not able to get along with others, 
you're gonna have a really hard time finding a job, it's probably the first place to start other than just building up a bunch of certifications. And that's just my personal opinion. If you're coachable and you're willing to work hard at learning new things and willing to be open-minded and trying different methodologies, then I think you'll be perfectly fine. Great. And I want to end this podcast with one last question for you. Your career journey has been through a lot, right? You went from psychology to like recruitment, then you went to New York to Colorado, then you went from recruiting to customer success. So there's been a lot of turns in your career. And with that being said, there's probably a lot of challenges along the way. So what has been one big challenge that you had to overcome throughout your journey to get to where you are today? Hmm. That's an interesting question. One big challenge. One big challenge that I've had to overcome just in terms of getting the jobs or sustaining the jobs yes. or uh, like even mindset, like maybe a shift in mindset helped you propel you to where you are, right? So anything that there's a big turning point that you had to make a decision on that ended up helping you to get to where you are right now. Okay. I think I have a good one. So this gets talked about a little bit on LinkedIn, but these are our future plans that I have to kind of join this conversation more. Like I mentioned, I majored in psychology. I have my BA in psychology and my BA in philosophy. I volunteer for an organization called NAMI. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I'm a peer support group facilitator. So I lead support groups. And there is another organization that I might possibly be working with in the future that they focus on student-athlete mental health. And I would say that mental health has been a really big challenge throughout my early 20s, from the beginning of college into my professional career, is that I've had some mental health challenges that have made it difficult for me to pursue just a professional career in the workplace. And I think that the stigma around that has definitely gotten a lot better. And I've started to see those conversations come up in different organizations. But in terms of the America with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and different reasonable accommodation requests, things that can be made early on, at least when I was in college, a lot of that focused on different physical disabilities. And in terms of mental disabilities, it was something that was a really touchy topic to have a conversation with HR about accommodations. And I know that I've spoken with many people who have asked for accommodations. And I know that sometimes, even though by law, you're entitled to accommodations, there's not been a great response. So I would say that one big barrier has been openness about mental health within the workplace, whether or not to disclose about my mental health, whether or not to ask for an accommodation, or whether or not to push forward. And I'll say that it's a space that I'm excited about in the future because I plan to use all of the skills that I've taken from college to the beginning of my career to now. In the future, I would really, really love to work on the business side in mental health. It's something that I'm passionate about, and I'm really hoping to see it continue to get better because right now it's just kind of one of those little quick taglines that you'll see at the end of like a job description or a post or something. It's just kind of like an asterisk or a fine print add-on. But in terms of a cultural shift and a cultural change of actually allowing people to do their jobs with an accommodation, I have not seen that as often as you would hope to see, at least in the United States. So that's been a big barrier for me. And that's something that I don't talk about very often. But I recently released an article through another nonprofit organization where I kind of went public about this. So 
I'm starting to do a little bit more advocacy work and doing kind of like share your own story in your own voice type events. And soon I'll hopefully be a speaker for NAMI and, you know, speak to different community events, police departments and schools and things like that, just about, you know, those types of topics. Awesome. And how can people reach out to you if they want to learn more about how to pivot into customer success management or if they want some advice on like how to reach out to recruiters? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Be good for them to just drop in the connection note that they're connecting from the podcast, uh, just so I have an idea of where they're coming from. But also they can, yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably a good way to go. Maybe you could just drop my LinkedIn link somewhere. My handle is linkedin.com slash in slash Natalie B. Murphy. And it'll just say customer success at SauceBiz, EHS software. And that's how you'll find me. And feel free to direct message me and we can go from there. Okay. Again, thank you for your time, Natalie. And best of luck for the rest of your year as a customer success manager. Thank you so much, Max. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.